0: Thanks for not killing us. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Julia.
0: And today we're talking about minutes 67 and 68, which begin with Helen making Enola drink and end with the Mariner getting upset over Enola's drawings. There is a detail from the novelization that I probably should have brought up last week, but I want to bring up here. In the book, Helen asks, can I have some? And the Mariner replies with, I thought the idea of drinking recycled urine made you sick. And Helen replies, it's not for me, it's for the girl.
1: Okay, I think that changes that conversation a little bit. So in the book, Helen also has promised not to drink.
0: Yes, but I don't remember before this page her saying anything about ew, recycled pee.
1: Yeah, which isn't in the movie either. The concept of recycled pee...
0: Is just a fact of the world.
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem like that big a deal in this setting.
0: I kind of love how... Helen shows off such big mom energy with Enola, giving her the cup and saying, all of it, all of it, yes, all of it.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) As she makes Enola drink that entire cup, while I'm sure Enola being a child is not crazy about the taste of the water, I think it's also worth saying that Enola probably wishes that she could save some for Helen.
1: Yeah, she tries to push the mug into Helen's hand. Mm Mm-hmm. And Helen pushes it back and physically makes her drink it. Tips the cup up.
0: And I think it's also worth saying that Enola asks, is he, the mariner, going to take them to dry land? And Helen just says, oh, sure he is, yeah.
1: Also mom vibes there, just presenting positivity, even if it's a complete lie. And Helen does feel like she knows she's lying. Mm -hmm. It feels like she knows that That is a good question, and a big question that is also weighing on her. Is he actually going to take them to dry land? Mm -hmm.
0: Are you familiar with the we have McDonald's at home meme?
1: Oh, yes, 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 for sure.
0: So you've got Enola saying, can we have dry land? And the mayor says we have dry land at home, and the dry land at home is just the undersea scene.
1: Yes. (laughs) That's perfect. I do appreciate that Enola...
0: Are you sure you want to start a sentence saying that you appreciate anything about Enola? I know, about Enola? What stopped me. <laughs>
1: I don't hate that Enola then goes over to the Mariner to interact with him. Mm-hmm. I feel like I should hate it because I don't like Enola, but the way she interacts with him is fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's not overly annoying.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The chapter in the book that contains this scene is from the Mariner's POV. And so we get a bit of internal monologue for him. After Helen gives the cup to Enola, he thinks at least she kept her word, the Mariner noted. She didn't take any for herself.
1: I appreciate that he noticed that. Yeah. That's kind of a big deal. The Mariner comes off as very, very selfish. And that observation is not selfish.
0: The Mariner in the book, because you get so many instances of, oh, this is what he's thinking. This is what he's looking at. This is what he's noticing. You get a lot more insight into his character than what Kevin Cosner is putting on screen.
1: Huh. That's funny. It also makes a lot of sense because he is an individual who is used to spending his time alone. Mm-hmm. He's not going to put his thoughts and feelings out there. He's not going to verbalize them for the world like you adjust to when you live with a person. So his quietness and his mystery and attitude that we see in the movie, it feels accurate.
0: If I was writing someone like the Mariner, a loner, Because of who I am as a person, I would write them as the kind of person to think out loud, to verbalize the things in their head. I do it because I'm an auditory person. If I hear it, I'm more likely to remember it. So if I have a thought that pops into my head, such as, where's my phone? Oh, my phone is over there on the table. I'm going to remember better that my phone is on the table than if I just saw it and thought in my head, oh, yeah, there it is on the table. Which is why you're always in another room and you hear me say things and you say, what did you say? And I said, nothing. (laughs) I'm thinking out loud for my own benefit. Yeah. There's no need to worry about it.
1: And I'm not so much like that. I do that sometimes, say things out loud just for the sake of hearing it out loud. But I do spend a lot more time in my head than you do. It is not uncommon for me to just be sitting on the couch, like playing on my phone or reading the news or whatnot, and it be completely silent for quite some time. No music, no throwing something on the TV to make noise, no talking out loud. I'm just sitting there completely silent. That is not uncommon.
0: Speaking of quiet activities, the Mariner is sitting to the side and he is splicing a torn drag line when Enola approaches. As it describes in the book, Enola comes slowly across the springy netting deck, her face solemn, her dreadlock braids swinging in the breeze, the cloth of her tunic doing likewise. Then she stood before him, staring at him. He stared right back at her, continuing with his coiling. Finally, the girl spoke. It was a whisper, barely audible above the wind. Thank you for not killing us.
1: Yeah, see, I'm not totally annoyed by that. (laughs) It's fine. In the book, does she lean in for a kiss?
0: She does.
1: Okay, let's hear it.
0: She bent forward and kissed him on the cheek. He couldn't have been more surprised or unnerved if she had struck him a blow. He got to his feet, brushing her aside, and she fell on the netting on her behind, not hard, bouncing. He really hadn't meant to knock her down and even thought it hadn't hurt the child. Chagrin spread across him like a rash. In the movie, that shove is very deliberate.
1: That shove feels like... A kid at the playground shoving a girl because he likes her, which is not an okay thing to do and not how you communicate that you like people.
0: What Enola is doing is genuinely sweet. She is saying, okay, thank you for not tossing us over the side, leaving us in your wake. And I'm going to accentuate that thanks by giving you a quick little peck on the cheek It's very innocent. Mm -hmm. Very sweet as children are. And the mariner, at having been touched by another person, he stands up, looms over her, and with both hands, shoves her down onto the netting. And that does not look like a soft landing. Yes, she's falling into nets, so it's not a hard landing. But it is a deliberate shove, get away from me, kid. Yeah. I ain't your friend.
1: What struck me about his motions was that it was not a knee-jerk reaction. There were moments as this was happening where he made choices. The only knee-jerk reaction that he had was he drew back a little when she kissed him, a little more than a flinch. That was automatic. But then, like, he paused and then stood up. He stood in front of her for a moment and then made a choice to push her down. So, very, very different than what is in the book. I wish they had done what was in the book. It would have made the Mariner less of a bad guy. Like, it was an accident that he wasn't sorry about. I'm more on board with that, especially because that happens all the time in the real world. It's constant that you do things in the moment that you honestly did not mean to do. And it still has negative consequences, but genuinely, you didn't mean to do it.
0: The Mariner in the movie is trying so hard to keep from forming any sort of attachment to these women. The way he stands up and looms over Enola, he is trying to make himself appear as a threat. And since Enola doesn't instantly back down from him, that's where he resorts to physically pushing her over.
1: And she doesn't respond to that intimidation move because she's too young to understand that. She doesn't see that as an intimidation move. She sees it as this man standing up in front of her. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know that she is supposed to back away. It's very much an innocence of her age thing. After all is said and done, he does the same thing he did last time he had a negative interaction with these two. Is that he walks off rather pouty.
0: Mm -hmm. puts some distance between him and them.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm going to go be alone.
1: Yeah, so definitely his MO. (laughs) There's confrontation, and then he walks away. It's not a bad thing. It does feel a bit mopey, but if you are angry, especially if you're angry enough to shove somebody, it's time to walk away. It's okay to walk away and like chill. So it's not a bad thing.
0: (laughs) What a bad thing is, is that... There are so many opportunities for him to communicate what his problems are, what his feelings about the situation are, and he does not communicate those.
1: Right. Is it this week or next week where Helen says the line, she's just a child, she doesn't know your rules? That's next week. Next week. So applying that to now, if he has a rule to not be touched... She doesn't know that rule. She doesn't have that rule for herself. So if you have that rule for yourself, you have to tell her you have that rule. Yeah. If she leans in for a kiss and you don't like it, you have to say, don't touch me. I don't don't
0: like to be touched.
1: Yeah. And she will not touch you anymore. So she doesn't know your rules.
0: And Helen rushes over and says, just stay away from him.
1: Yeah. That should have been the rule again. Enola doesn't know the rules. Mm-hmm. Helen should have said, okay, here is how we are going to behave on this ship. You're not going to go anywhere near him. You're not going to touch his things. I'm jumping ahead of Skosh. Helen knows that Enola has a penchant for drawing on things. Mm-hmm. That should have been a rule. Helen is big on rules and communicating those because Enola is a child. Well, she should have set rules for Enola as well. again, So many problems could have been solved with communication.
0: We transition from one scene to the other with an aerial shot of the trimaran. And as we get back into things, the mariner is climbing down the mast. And we find Helen in the foreground, sewing a piece of sail.
1: Yeah, she is participating in the maintenance of the ship, as appropriate.
0: Yeah. The book says, Despite an undercurrent of hostility, the woman was doing her best not to cross him. She'd lend a hand whenever she could, working hard, obviously trying to earn her keep and the child's. Once coming down from a high point on the mast where he'd been making a repair, he had stopped to watch her as she sat sewing a patch onto a spare sail. And this is where we get another one of those in-his-head observations. She had grace and a supple, womanly way about her that made him ache somewhere deep inside him, not just in his loins. So it wasn't just a sexual attraction, but some sort of human connection longing that he is buried deep inside of himself
1: yeah we were talking about when you're deprived of human touch mm-hmm. i think that's what he's feeling which is sad it's sad to hear his inner monologue like that because he is lonely and he doesn't know it and it's moments like that when you get the hints that he
0: is did you notice when he got to the bottom of the mast, he stood there looking at Helen and then Helen turned to look at him? In the book, it describes that by saying, Then she caught him looking at her. And again, embarrassment spread across him and he turned quickly away and went to the steering console to check the boat's course.
1: <laughs> As we are watching Helen fix the sail, I noticed the little thingy on
0: her hand. Oh yeah, it's like a loop.
1: Yeah, it's called a sailmaker's palm. Oh, And it's a thick piece of leather that wraps around the hand and thumb. And the one that I found online has a piece of metal with a deep divot, almost like a grommet hole in it. It's for when you're sewing sailcloth, which is very, very tough for pushing the needle through. So that's what she's got on her hand.
0: Okay. Something to make the needle easier to push through the cloth. So that way you're not pushing it with your bare skin. Yes. I gotcha.
1: Exactly. I I know in the past, whenever I've been sewing something and it's been thick or hard, (laughs) I've taken my sewing scissors and used those to push the needle through because yeah, even the back end of the needle is still sharp. And also when you're working with canvas and sailcloth, those are big needles. I do also like that. In the few moments that we're paying attention to Helen and the Mariner, we see Enola in the background run across the boat and jump into the little pit mm-hmm. that the Mariner is about to run into her in.
0: I can't help but smile when Enola is sitting there as if lounging casually, and <laughs> she looks up and says, Hi. The mariner is not having any of it. He just says, move.
1: It does feel like she did that on purpose. (laughs) Just so she could run into him. Okay, it feels like something someone with a crush would do. Purposely put yourself in the way so that you get to interact with your crush.
0: Well, Helen did say, you stay away from him. But Helen didn't say anything about him staying away from her. Right. Enola's in a situation where... It has been her and Helen for so long and now you've got this other person and she's intrigued by him. He is mysterious and new and she is, I would say, curious above all.
1: That's a very good description of her.
0: And the Mariner has a lot of stepdad energy. As much as he (laughs) hates the idea of being a member of this family, he is filling that role. Helen is the mom, Manola is the child, and he is the situationally dictated stepdad
1: he is right down to what happens next
0: (laughs) he is so
1: used to his own way of doing things that when a child who is unpredictable and less tethered by the world makes changes to that thing he flips out (laughs) flips out
0: he tells enola to move Helen calls out for Enola, and to Enola's credit, she once again responds very quickly to Helen, bounding out of the way, and we get a quick shot of the Mariner focusing on Enola's tattoo. He still hasn't gotten the explanation of what the tattoo is all about. He may have seen it at the bar on the Atoll. I don't think he was looking as intently as the Nord was.
1: Right, but he didn't notice it because it's unusual.
0: Yeah, and here he is noticing it again probably thinking to himself that it's an enigma. It says here, as she went, meaning Enola, he caught a glimpse of the strange markings on her back. He'd noticed them before, and he did wonder what they were. But asking about them would bring him closer to these two, and he did not really care to be any closer to them than he already was. It says he'd never had to share his ship with anyone before, and this clutter of humanity was driving him crazy.
1: (laughs) Clutter of humanity, I love that phrasing. So he's curious, but not curious enough.
0: In the book, there is something else that happens between Enola running away and the Mariner climbing down to go below deck. The Mariner takes his seat at the console. He plucks his telescope from his cavern and begins slowly scanning the horizon. Then something was blocking his sights and he lowered the device and realized Enola had wandered into his line of vision. <laughs> and he exclaims, for the love of Poseidon, you're in my view. And Helen has to call Enola over again.
1: That is so clutter of humanity. (laughs) That perfectly illustrates his point, which makes things, this situation from the Mariner's point of view, more sympathetic. I think that's what this movie is missing, is any motivation to feel any kind of sympathy for the Mariner.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, more examples of how his normal modus operandi is interrupted by them. We get a lot of examples here, but... They're framed in such a way that he is cold and unfeeling towards them instead of they are disrupting the flow of life on the boat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're so much more sympathetic to Helen and Enola as we watch this than him that we don't get that sense that his life has been uprooted.
1: Because it's obvious that their lives have been uprooted. Mm -hmm. We spent quite a bit of time watching their lives, become uprooted, whereas the Mariner's life became uprooted when he was captured and sentenced to death, but then he got to return to his ship. Mm -hmm. So it feels like a return to normalcy, but it's really, really not.
0: So do you want to talk about these drawings that we see?
1: Yeah, let's talk about the drawings.
0: Moving left to right, the first one that I see is a character drawn with black crayon holding an oar swinging it down at a character drawn in green with long hair. So that very clearly, to me, depicts the Mariner hitting Helen with the oar.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes.
0: And then we also get another drawing of a horse, some trees and green mountains. And then above that are three stick figures drawn in pink. Now, you could say that the three figures represent Helen the Mariner and Enola, but Considering that the three characters are over onto the side with the mountains, trees, and horse, that this might be our first depiction of Enola's true parents.
1: Two things. One, the childlike figure in this little family is clearly a
0: baby. Very small.
1: Very, very small. So I agree, this is definitely her original family. Secondly, it is clustered with the depictions of the horse, trees, and mountains, as opposed to with the picture of the Mariner hitting Helen with the oar. Mm -hmm. Lastly, there is going to be a moment quite a ways down still where Enola draws the three of them, the Mariner, Helen, and Enola as a family. And that is a big moment. It signals a change in how things are going. So we need to not see that type of drawing until that moment.
0: And as the mariner finds these drawings, Fury brushes across his face and he pops his head up and he shouts, hey, across the boat. And Enola is actively drawing on another part of the boat here.
1: Yeah, he has engaged stepdad mode again.
0: In the book, the drawings that he finds are a bit more recent in Enola's history. It says that there are drawings right on the hull, violent images, sketched not in easily removed charcoal, but with crayons, smokers pierced by arrows, atollers wounded in battle, which is actually what we see here with Enola drawing at the base of the mast. There is a white stick figure with a red line drawn across its neck. She is depicting the battle in this second location.
1: Okay. Okay. Do we get a good look at the drawings in this minute? I don't think we do. I think we have to wait till next week to look at the second set of drawings.
0: Yeah, six or seven seconds before the end of the clip, we're at a very severe angle. And it's not a close-up. Okay. That's why I can only really make out the one figure.
1: The idea of her drawing her previous life on things is not really in the book? Or it's just not in the book right in that specific place?
0: Well, it's... She's drawing what she has seen.
1: Okay, because I have questions, I guess, about her remembering Dryland. Like, I don't think she should be able to remember Dryland. I get the vibe that she was a baby when she left, or she was a toddler when she left. I don't think she should be able to remember it.
0: Well, those memories...
1: Are subconscious. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that. It makes her feel prophetic.
0: All right, well, you don't like it, but the screenwriters did.
1: That's one of the things that I really don't like about Enola and how she's treated in this movie is that she is some special golden child who is a chosen one.
0: You've said as much before.
1: Yeah, and the tattoo makes that inevitable, but then they add on top of this that she has these images in her head of things that nobody else has ever seen.
0: Gregor said in past minutes that she has an active imagination, and where are the things in her imagination going to come from if not from subconscious memories?
1: I don't like it.
0: As we get closer to the end of the clip, the Mariner seems to rush over to Enola and demand what she's doing. In the books, it says, hey, he yelled. The child was sitting now, using the Crayola to scribble more images right onto the central hull of the boat. Dozens of drawings. Damn. (laughs) He stalked over to her. What the hell are you doing? She didn't look up at him, shrugging a little, decorating your boat. It's ugly.
1: (laughs) So nonchalant. Yeah.
0: And the mariner in this clip, he looks so betrayed. So hurt. It's his boat. Oh, what have you done?
1: It's his companion.
0: You horrible little demon child. You've defaced my pride and joy.
1: He doesn't get an animal sidekick (laughs) that most protagonists get nowadays, it feels like. So his sidekick is his boat. Mm -hmm. So I definitely feel for him. I don't love that Enola draws everywhere, but it's also inevitable. She's a kid. She's not just going to sit there and look out at the ocean all day. She's too small to really be helpful much. (laughs) So what do you expect her to do? She's going to do something.
0: It's a shame you can't just shove her in a box, punch a few holes for air, and just leave her in there. (laughs)
1: I'm not going to disagree with you on that.
0: All right. Well, that's where we're going to end things for now. Come back next time. The Mariner will confiscate his crayon. Enola will tell the Mariner that she isn't afraid of him, and Helen will fly into panic mode. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures.
0: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com.
1: Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at Mad
1: And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
0: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash
1: Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 34. We'll see you next time.